0: Uh, First off, it is Christmas Sunday, Sunday closest to Christmas, which I look forward to all year. I'm a big Christmas nerd. I also saw, um, I saw It's a Wonderful Life for the first time in my life this year. Yeah. And uh, nobody, I'm like a little offended at everyone I've ever met because that is one of the most incredible movies I have ever seen. I was, I, I was, yeah, yeah. Let's have a round of applause for George Bailey to start church today. I I was ugly crying, like undignified Old Testament King David crying at the end of that movie. I'm not even kidding. So it's a big, it's a big Sunday for, because I saw It's a Wonderful Life, apparently. Big Sunday because it's, uh, it's, it's Christmas Sunday. It's also Lars' birthday today. So uh, Lars, I think I know Lars enough to know that he probably hates that I just did that, but Lars, uh, your wife made me do that, so can't be mad at me. Uh, and also today, today's big Sunday because um, we are finishing, we are concluding our Acts series today. Today marks the end of the, it is the longest uh, sermon series that I've preached in my going on eight years as pastor, uh, the 24th week. And uh, I'm not going to take a lot of time doing this, but I just wanted to mention that um, you know we started this back in July when we went outside. We we you know we got out of the strictly online church and and, uh, and we decided to, to hold outdoor services. And um, you know we didn't pick Acts sort of by like throwing a dart at a board. There's a there's a reason behind this. We try to do that with every sermon series we do. And of course I mean any time you preach from a Book of the Bible, it's going to be a good idea because it's you know it's God's word. But the reason for Acts specifically is because um, with everything going on in the world right now, uh, you, you know, you got, uh, man, where do you even start to elaborate on that statement? Uh, there's just a lot of things going on. You know, all the things, you know, those things that are going on, all of them is why we did Acts. And you have, uh, you know, you have a pandemic that's causing church to look different than it ever has. Uh, and then on top of that, you had And still have all of these hot button, super polarizing, divisive cultural issues that everybody demands you take a stance on. And once you do, once you have an opinion, they put you in a box and they put you on a side. And we're not allowed to, you know, have a relationship with somebody who might see one thing differently than us because of reasons. Uh, And then on top of that, it was an election year. And so, uh, you know, the thought behind Acts was that it it just seemed like it, it it was more important now than it ever has been. For for people to be reminded of what Christianity really is and what it really means to follow Jesus, whether you're skeptical about Christianity or you've been following Him for decades, one thing that we all have in common is we have a tendency to to, to kind of create our own version of Christianity, and we'll tend to add things that that aren't necessary to it, or we'll take away things that are necessary from it, and. Um, and so the, the, uh, the idea behind spending this kind of time in Acts, literally from July to December, is just that we would, we would see over and over again what original, early Christianity is supposed to look like, what it really is supposed to mean to follow Jesus. And my hope in this series on the front end, and I even said this, is that in, in looking at this book that, that we would be recalibrated, that we would see the areas of our life um, that don't line up with what God has said this is supposed to look like and we would change. And, uh, you know, I can tell you with with conviction, uh, God has recalibrated me in a, in a number of ways that I do not have the time to elaborate on uh, on a Sunday morning. God has recalibrated me uh, uh, over the span of a 24-week sermon series in the book of Acts. I certainly hope that he's done that for you, too. But even if you've gotten absolutely nothing out of this series, there's hope because we have one more teaching left. So we're going to do this one more time. Uh, we're going to look at, at uh, the book of Acts, and uh, and actually, we're, we're going to be looking at, at um the book of Acts, and also Second uh, Timothy, uh, and you'll see why in just a minute here. So I want to I open up today, I want to read Acts chapter 28, just the last two verses, it's verses 30 and 31, it says this, Then he, being Paul, stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. And then we'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll read verses 6 through 18. Again, Paul speaking. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Damas has deserted me because he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left to try as with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him to his works." Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. In my first offense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully made through me and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, Amen. This is God's word. Uh, if you've been with me throughout this series, you know that, that the, uh, it, really what it is is the final third of the book of Acts. It's all about Paul's suffering, uh, from about chapter 21 all the way to the end, chapter 28. Everything goes wrong for Paul. Uh, he he's 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 falsely accused. He's wrongly imprisoned. He's uh, nearly assassinated while he's in custody. Uh, He's denied justice, and so he has to appeal to Rome just to get a fair trial. And so he has to get on a boat, set sail across the Mediterranean. When he does, he gets in a shipwreck, almost loses his life, Then he crash lands on an island only to get bitten by a snake. Everything in Paul's life goes wrong. And you would think, I say that to say, you would think that after everything that we've read over the last seven, eight chapters now, that Luke, the author of Acts would give us a little bit more of a satisfying ending, uh, but all we're told at the end, verses 30 and 31, the first two verses I read, is that when Paul got to Rome, he's put on house arrest uh, and that he he preached, he proclaimed the gospel with boldness and, and without hindrance. What we're not told is whether or not Paul even went to trial after all of this, and if he did go to trial, how it went. Uh, did he live? Did he die? Did he, you know, what happened? We're not, we're not given any of that. Uh, it's a very abrupt kind of anticlimactic ending that, that frankly raises a lot more questions than it answers. And it leaves us primarily asking the question, so what does happen to Paul? And uh, Luke, if you, if you kind of know the customs of the day, Luke gives us kind of a hint uh, in those verses if you read them really carefully. Because if, if, if you remember, what Luke said is that for, he said for two whole years, Paul stayed in that house in Rome. That's a really significant detail. Because according to the law in that day, uh, you know, Paul had come to Rome to be tried. He kind of had to appeal to Rome to get a fair trial, so, so he set sail for Rome. But according to the, to the law of the day in the Roman Empire, there was a two-year statutory period once you were in custody in Rome during which that, that two-year period of time, your accusers uh, had the chance to get all of their information together and then present their case against you. After that two-year period of time, if they failed to do that, that was up and, and basically be free to go. So the fact that we are told at the end of Acts that for, for uh, Paul was in his house for two whole years, really what that is, is it's, is it's Luke's hint that the accusers never showed up. So basically what we know from those two verses, it's entirely likely that Paul never came to trial and he would have simply been released. And, and that's confirmed not by the Bible specifically, but by tradition. Tradition tells us that... that um, Paul's accusers never showed, and so he was released, but then many years later, he was imprisoned again, he was tried again, and then finally he was executed. Some say at the hands of of Nero. Uh, And so what we have, the the very end of Paul's life, instead of it being recorded in Acts, it's actually recorded for us in in 2 Timothy, the verses that we spent the most time on on the front end. Uh, Because what 2 Timothy is, it's actually the final letter that Paul wrote that became a part of what we now refer to. As our New Testament and what I want to do today is is look at you know we've been following along with this murderer turned missionary since Acts chapter 9 we've been you know looking at his life in painstaking detail of how things went from bad to worse on his way to you know Rome to see whether he gets justice and how his life pans out what I want to do today now that we've arrived at the end of Acts is actually look at the end of Paul's life Um, because what is crystal clear from the words that he wrote to Timothy at the end of the letter known as 2 Timothy, is that that Paul did something that every single, I don't care what you believe, I don't care what you're sure of and what you're skeptical about, what is clear from Paul's words is that he was able to do something that every single person listening to me right now wants to do. Paul finished well. There's not a person alive that doesn't want to do that. And I, I think I've even said this before, but man, getting off to a great start is, is that's, that's great, but a lot of people can do that. What a lot of people don't do is finish well. But frankly, all the great starts, all the good starts, all the, you know, none of that really matters if we don't finish well. And what Paul's words show us is that he finished well. And he finished well because of four perspectives that he held on to and he was shaped by throughout his whole life. And in his words, we find those four perspectives. They're perspectives that every one of us needs if we're going to finish well. Four perspectives that we need to hold on to and live out the, the implications of if we're going to finish this year well, if we're going to finish our lives well, which is something that I know all of us wants to do. And I'm actually, I'm going to give them to you on the, end, on, the, on the front end. There are four perspectives. They are, number one, life is a struggle. Number two, death is an adventure. Number three, history is a masterpiece. And fourthly and lastly, there's only one thing that you really need. So we're going to take our time walking through those four perspectives this morning. That's going to bring us right to our first idea on the front end of our last teaching from the book of Acts. Number one, uh, life is a struggle. And I didn't think I was going to have to hard sell anybody on this idea after the year that 2020 proved to be. In 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, really famous verse. People have turned to this for inspiration and encouragement throughout life. He said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And what what Paul is is saying here, fundamentally, if you you had uh, been an original recipient of this letter, he's saying that life is a struggle. Because when he says, I fought the good fight, uh, the the Greek words that he's using there for fight, what it literally meant was a wrestling match. Like like professional Olympic wrestling in the games, in the arena, in the, in the Coliseum. Uh, it's the Greek word, agon, from which we get our English word, agony. And it literally means a struggle. So what I'd ask you to do is just think for a moment about this metaphor, because I actually think it's a little bit more profound than maybe it seems like on the surface. The reason I say that is because wrestling is a unique sport in a number of ways. I'm not talking about WWE. I'm talking about actual wrestling here. One of the things that makes wrestling so unique is it's one of the only sports that you truly cannot let your guard down for even a moment. And you compare that to something like, you know, football, you know, if you're, if you're the quarterback and your team's on defense or, you know, if you're playing baseball, most of the game is spent basically waiting for something to happen. It doesn't work that way in wrestling. In, in the sport of wrestling, you watch two wrestlers going at each other. There's really not a moment that either of them can afford to let their guard down because the moment that you do that, uh, you're pinned and that's the end. And so Paul's looking back over his life, and he's saying that's what his whole life has been like. Now, when when Paul says that life is a struggle, uh, he probably doesn't mean what you think he means there. Because most people, when they hear this idea of life is a struggle, the first thing that comes to your mind is, yeah, life's a struggle. You know, life is, is, is full of hardship, it's full of disappointments, you know, things rarely, if ever, work out the way that you want them to, and after that, you know, you die. So yeah, life is a struggle, amen. That's actually not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is not talking about life in general. He's talking very specifically about the Christian life. And what he's, the idea that he's conveying here is that the Christian life, just like a wrestling match, the Christian life is a deliberate struggle against something that a whole lot of people are not struggling against at all. Now the question that that raises is, okay, well, what, what is the Christian life a struggle against? What is it supposed to be a struggle against? And depending on how you answer that question, you you can get pretty far off in left field. You can become something that Jesus never designed people who claim to be his followers to be. And and Paul actually answers that question for us in 1 Corinthians 9. Because in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul sort of elaborates on this metaphor that he's touching on here. And he says to the Corinthians, he he sort of draws this parallel, this metaphor between uh, the Christian life and the life of an athlete which would have made a lot of sense to people in the Greco-Roman world because, these, remember, these are the people that in, basically invented the Olympics. And he says to them that, that Christians basically need to think just like athletes in training. And he bottom lines that metaphor, and he says the reason the two are similar is because they both require this thing that you've no doubt heard of called self-control. But the Greek word for self-control that he uses there is the word, I'm pretty confident I'm not going to pronounce this right, it's, it's agratoamai whether or not that's pronounced correctly, what it literally means is ego control. And so, so follow me here. When, when Paul is, is saying, when he's looking back on his life writing to a young Timothy and he's saying that he's fought this good fight, meaning that, that life has been a struggle and we need, to, we need to remember that the Christian life is a struggle. What he's saying is that the Christian life is a struggle against, primarily against, the demands of your own ego. Uh, t- to me, This idea, you know, comparing a Christian to an athlete in training, is, is, you know, the more that I thought about it, this is actually a pretty brilliant metaphor because athletes in training, you know, what it really boils down to is what they have to do is they have to learn as a lifestyle to say no to their most fundamental and natural impulses. Matter of fact, that's really the difference between any great athlete and everybody else. What you have at the core of every great athlete is just somebody who is willing to say no when it would have been a lot easier to say yes. So for instance, where everybody else says yes to eating whatever they want, an athlete says, no, I need to watch my diet. Or where everybody else says yes to going out wherever they want, whenever they want, staying out however late they want, an athlete says, no, I, I, my body needs rest. I need to be up in the morning, which means I need to be early to bed. And where everybody else... You know, when they're in the middle of of something physically exerting and they're exhausted, you know, nobody naturally likes the feeling of, of their legs aching or their lungs burning or their heart pounding. And so they quit. That's where they call it. That's where a truly great athlete says, no, this is where I differentiate myself from my competition. This is where it's time to lean in. So where everybody else would say, yes, I'm done with this, they say, no. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Paul, writing to young Timothy, he's saying, if you want to know what my life has been like... If you want to know what Christianity is really like, what a life of following Jesus is really like, that's, that's the Christian life right there. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a useful metaphor, but it, it certainly falls short because I think anybody would agree that uh, it's a whole lot more difficult you know, living the Christian life than to simply be an athlete in training because Christians, according to God's word, are required to practice ego control on a far greater scale. Denying their own natural impulses on a far greater scale. And to, to kind of elaborate on what I mean here, I wanted to read a quote from you from, from, um, from Martin Luther. This is found in his lecture on the book of Romans. And this is going to give everybody a nice shot of uh, self-esteem on a Sunday morning. Here's what he said, reflecting on kind of the biblical view of, of your heart, your nature. He said, Due to our original sin, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself it's a Latin phrase that he's famous for in Curvitous say. He said our, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize that in this wicked, twisted and crooked way it seeks all things including God for itself. That, that's the biblical understanding of human nature. That basically that your ego is so ravenous, it's so starved, it's so hungry, it's so desperate uh, that, that it basically it desires to use everything and everyone uh, in, in, in your life for your own selfish interests. Now, that's certainly not you know, a very feel-good thing to, to hear about ourselves, but the plain fact is if you, don't, if you and I don't realize that about ourselves, if we're not on to that in ourselves, if we're not aware that that's you know, always kind of creeping into the corners of our hearts, then, then really at bottom we just don't know ourselves very well. And what what Luther is saying here is that basically, whenever you go in any situation in life, in any interaction in life, in any opportunity in life, in any meeting in life, whenever you enter into a relationship in life, there's basically one of two operating systems that you can operate according to. It, it, It really doesn't get a whole lot simpler than this. One operating system says your life and your resources given to serve me. And the other one says, my life and my resources laid down and given to serve you. It's really that simple. And what his quote here is, is meant to sort of drive home from us, taken from the letter known as Romans, is he's saying that that, that first operating system, your life for my sake, that is, the, that is the default operating mechanism of the human heart. And and, he, and, and what, he, what he's saying, kind of building on that, is that... Uh, you will revert to that and I will revert to that automatically. Nobody needs to teach us this. Nobody needs to train us in this. That we'll do this throughout our lives unless we actively struggle against it. And if we do not struggle against it over the course of a lifetime, then what Luther's hinting at here, and what other theologians are really explicit about, like Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis, and certainly what stories in the Bible show us over and over and over again, is that if we do not actively struggle against this, Meaning if we choose to go through life with this kind of default setting that looks at people and looks at situations and looks at opportunities primarily from the lens of what can I get out of this? What's going to be the return on interest? If we feed into that mindset throughout our lives, then what is going to happen throughout our lives is it's actually going to change us. It's going to shrink us and we're going to become smaller. Uh, To quote um, Luther here, what it means is you'll curve in on yourself until so you become nothing more than just basically a, a, a little shrunken point of who you could have otherwise been. You'll, you'll be less and less capable of loving anybody, less and less capable of empathizing with anybody, of seeing life from a viewpoint other than your own. You'll become more self-pitying. Uh, you'll become more self-justifying. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be more and more convinced that, that nobody really understands you, that you see the big picture, that nobody else gets it, that you know, you'll be more unwilling to let people speak into your life. And you'll become more angry, you'll become more miserable, you'll become more more isolated until the day that you die. And, and what will happen to people that go through life this way is almost without fail, because they're so incapable of forming any kind of deep, long-lasting relationships, they'll just kind of, you know, in a, in a surface-level way, attach, you know, to, to people group, to people group, to relationship, to relationship, to, to community, to community, and they'll go, through, they'll go through life like that until their life is over, unless... You fight, to quote Paul here, unless you fight this good fight all throughout your life. That's what, that's what Paul's words are basically implying here. So when Paul, writing to young Timothy, reflects back on his life, and he's talking about this lifelong wrestling match that he's fought to the very end of his life, this, this, this lifelong struggle, that's the struggle. And I, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, that struggle shows up every single day, every single day. Until the day that we die. Uh, and and, and, and it, although that's not a real pleasant note to start a teaching on, the reason that that's so important is, is we will never finish well unless we understand that we will never be done with this struggle in this body on this side of eternity. And so first and foremost, the first perspective we can see in Paul's writings is that life is a struggle. It's, against your own, it's a struggle against your, your own ego's tendency to put you and your agenda first. That's the first First perspective we see in Paul's words. The second is going to be our second idea today. It's number two, and this one's going to take some explaining. Death is an adventure. In, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6, Paul says, for, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. When Paul says here, the time for my departure is is close, uh, what he's obviously talking about is his own death. But that is, uh, to me, and I'm sure you would agree, that is a, a very fascinating way to do it because the Greek word that he uses there literally means to untie, to untie something. And it was specifically used to refer to untying a boat so that that boat could leave the harbor, leave the dock, and go on a voyage. Uh, and what I want to focus on here with, with Paul's words is just this incredible balance that Paul has and really the rest of scripture affirms uh, regarding the Christian view of death. Because if you really think about what Paul is saying here, when a boat is untied, when a boat unmoors and sets sail, on the one hand, that's a really sad thing because it means that there's a, there's a goodbye, there's a departure, and there's a certain sorrow associated with that. But on the other hand, it's a really exciting thing because it's not just a departure, it's also an adventure. And, and this, this uh, balanced view of death is something that you see not only in, in Paul's final words here, this is something that he kind of built out a little bit more during, um, during the, the kind of the heart of his ministry. Uh, it's something, if you were here with us last year, we, we did a, uh, I think it was about a, an 18 or 19 week series of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul, same author, was writing to people who had lost loved ones, writing to people who were trying to process death on this side of eternity. And, uh, and, and, and what he says there is something that often gets read at funerals. And it's, again, it, it strikes this perfect balance where he tells these people who have had to say goodbye to people that they love. Paul basically says to them in 1 Corinthians 4.13, he says, I want you to grieve. You should grieve. It is the appropriate response of people to grieve in the face of death. But he chases that by saying, but don't you dare grieve like people who don't have hope. So he says on the one hand, he's not saying don't grieve, but he's saying grieve differently. Grieve with a defiant hope at the core of your being. That's this balance. And if you want to see what that that actually looks like, there's really no better place in scripture to see this balance at play than Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. In in, uh, John chapter 11, um, you see that Lazarus, who is one of the best friends of Jesus, which is an incredible thing to think about, one of the best friends of Jesus during Jesus' time here, Lazarus, has died. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are are in the wake of this, and they're out there and and they're weeping. And when you look at Jesus' response to this situation, you see this kind of perfect balance that you see in, in Paul's final words here. Because what you have, if if you're familiar with the story, what is so crystal clear at the front is that Jesus is anything but stoic in the face of death. Uh, When Mary comes out, the sister of Lazarus, she falls at the feet of Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. I I think this is so amazing. I don't think we spend nearly enough time considering this. The Bible says simply, in response to, to Mary's words, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. The Bible says Jesus wept. That's all it says. Two words. It, it constitutes the shortest verse in the entire Bible, but that tells us more about the heart of God than we will ever understand in a lifetime worth of study. That The Son of God... It, it, so many times Christians have this idea that... The, even Christians, that, that we kind of got to use our theology as like a coping mechanism and that we can't grieve bad things because that's God's sovereign plan for our life. You don't see anything like that mindset in Jesus. The Son of God wept... When one of his friends died. And and not only that. It it actually shows us so much more about Jesus. Because twice in that story. There's a Greek word used to describe the emotions of Jesus. It gets translated differently. Depending on your version of the Bible. I read from the Holman Christian Standard Version. Twice in John chapter 11. It's the same Greek word that, that describes Jesus. My version says Jesus was deeply moved. It's it's a word that literally means to to, to have kind of a burning anger within you. Actually, the literal definition is to to be snorting with anger. It's almost describing like a war horse that's getting ready to go to battle. Twice, uh, the the, the text says that emotion was present within Jesus. When Jesus saw the friends and family members of Lazarus weeping, he experienced that kind of deep-seated anger. And then when he actually stood by the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, he experienced that anger again. And hopefully this goes without saying, but I'll just make it clear anyway. Jesus was not angry at Lazarus for dying. And he certainly was not angry at the friends and family of Lazarus for weeping. He was angry at the tyrannical hold that death had over humanity. And what Jesus' response to death shows us is that this world as it is today is not the world that God originally intended or designed. And people have fought me on that before. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep fighting that. At the beginning of the Bible, what is so clear is that God did not design a world with sickness and pain and death in it. The world, the world exists as it does today because we turned away from God. And here you see in John chapter 11 that even though we're the cause of all of that, still Jesus was moved to tears and moved with anger when he saw what death was doing to the to the creation that he so loved and had come to die for. Now you compare this view of death to what... You know, just a general secular view of death offers you, and you see how rich Christianity is and how bankrupt secularism will leave you in, in the face of death. Because death is something that we all need to deal with eventually. Maybe it's something that, that some of us have had to deal with prematurely in 2020. And if you want to kind of get a, 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 a good read on the secular view of death and the resources that a secular worldview will give you in the face of death, all you need to do is watch The Lion King. That's not even a joke. And I'm a fan of The Lion King. I've seen The Lion King probably a hundred times in my life. But there's this one scene in the movie where Mufasa is counseling his son Simba, who I guess was having an existential crisis as a young lion, and he starts talking to him about death. And he says, Simba, you know, you don't really have to worry about death because, uh, you know, when lions die, I've got, I got great news for you, son. Lions die and become fertilizer. And that makes the grass grow. And that's great because antelopes eat the grass. And, uh, of course, as, as you know, son, you know, lions eat antelopes. And so it's just the circle of life. That's, In a nutshell, that is the secular view of death. That it's just, you know, it's the logical end to biological life. And there's no point freaking out about it. There's no point worrying about it. It's as natural as living. It's as natural as dying. And so we all just need to, you know, kind of try to make a life for ourselves between now and whenever that day comes. That is... That is, that. I mean, can you see compared to Scripture how utterly bankrupt that's going to leave you? See, it's it's fine if death is not not an ever-present reality and you're in my life right now. We can entertain that kind of idea without realizing how paper-thin it actually is. But when you show up to the funeral of somebody that you loved, or when you know somebody that was cut down in the prime of their life, Or when you get a call from a doctor and now you, whether you like it or not, have to deal with your own mortality, you know how bankrupt that kind of view of death is. There's something embedded in the human heart that we did not put there that tells us that death is wrong. Death is evil. Death is not natural. And it is to be railed against. And what you see in in Jesus Christ, what you see in the heart of God, his response to death should inform our response to death that we should weep at death. And we should get angry at death. We should grieve death. But what Jesus also shows us is that we should never grieve death like people without hope. Because at the end of that story, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead as a token of what he's going to do at the end of time for every single person who puts their trust in him. For that reason, and that reason alone, Paul could write to Timothy and say, hey, this looks like the end for me, but my death is just a departure. I came across a quote this week. It's from a, a George, guy named George Herbert. He said, Death used to be an executioner, but the, gar- the gospel has made him just a gardener. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. When I heard that quote, I decided to look up George Herbert. And, uh, and I, I actually got a little bit emotional when I was thinking about this. George Herbert was a 16th century Welsh poet and priest in the Church of England. And for whatever reason, when I saw his name, I saw the little time stamp on Wikipedia next to his life, and I saw that George Herbert died before he he saw his 40th birthday. I don't know why that bothered me so much. He was 39 years old, about a month out from his 40th birthday, when his life was cut short. And I thought about his words. First off, I thought, I mean, how amazing would George Herbert think it is? We were 500 years removed from his life and a 33-year-old pastor was quoting him. But but then I thought, but how, how amazing is it that God gave him the insight to see that the gospel has turned death from an executioner to a gardener? Because if that's not true, then George Herbert's life is nothing but an irredeemable tragedy. If that's not true, then his life was in a, in a meaningless way cut short. Needless suffering is all that was. But if the gospel is true then what that means is death has been transformed from an executioner to a gardener. And that's exactly what Scripture teaches us. That all, all death can do to you now, once you're in Jesus Christ, is make you more alive than you ever were in this life. And just like a seed has to be buried, it has to be buried, there is no other way except for a seed to be buried in order for it to become the great thing that it's designed to be. So you and I must be buried. If we are to become the great things, the great beings that God has designed us to be. Because on the other side of our death in Jesus, just as it was for Jesus, on the other side of of the grave for us is waiting the resurrection. And there's a lot of authors, there's a lot of people who have tried to speculate about what resurrected life is going to be like, or what our resurrected bodies are going to be like. But what I think is so amazing about just this verse Paul wrote to Timothy, is that it gives us a really clear picture of what, I'll make it personal, what your resurrection is going to be like. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. But, but here's what 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse, verse 6 means for you. It means that your entire life, the greatest, think about the greatest times of your life. I mean the mountaintop experiences of your life, when you were most thankful to be alive. I think about being in the hospital with my wife four times, saying hi to two boys and two girls. Think about the mountaintop experiences of your life. When you have felt a kind of joy, a kind of love that has moved you to tears, the greatest moments of your life, what this this passage alone means, is even the best parts of your life, even in those times, your whole life, you've been nothing more than a boat that's been tied up at a dock, just bobbing on the waves. That's all your life has been. Even the best moments of your life have been little more than that. But the moment of your resurrection, you're going to be untied. You're going to be set loose. You're going to be free. Open to a world more beautiful than than anything you can imagine in the little harbor you've lived in your whole life. Set free to do what it is you were designed to do, far more alive than you have ever been on this side of eternity. That's what resurrection is going to be like for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. And this, this idea had to be what influenced C.S. Lewis when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Because all the way at the end, at the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus, speaking about this very subject. And here's what he said. He said, all their life in this world and all their adventures. I got some news this week that uh, it just makes these words a little bit more meaningful. He said, all their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's the hope we have in Jesus. I don't know how people do this without him. But secondly, if you want to finish well, you have to to understand and you have to internalize this perspective on death. That of course death is sad because it's a departure. But because of Jesus, because of a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb, death is an adventure. The third thing we see from Paul's words is number three, that history is a masterpiece. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 16 through 18 it says "At my first defense no one stood by me but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully made through me and all the Gentiles might hear so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what, what Paul is saying there is that, that here it is at his first defense that things looked bad for him. That all his friends were not there for him. That people wanted him dead but then God rescued him from the lion's mouth. And then he says something that, that at face value this is a problematic thing that Paul says. Because then in verse 18 he says the Lord will rescue me From every evil work. That's problematic on its face. And the reason I say that is because at first sight, that looks like Paul is saying, God's rescued me from every bad thing that could have happened to me. And that's what he's going to do every time. That God's hand is with me. God loves me. God has a calling on my life. And so nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. It's always going to end the same way. But of course, that can't be what Paul means here. Because in this same passage, we just looked at the verses where Paul says, Hey, the end is near for me. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm almost spent and my departure is near. So Paul knows that his execution is just around the corner. So, so what does verse 18 mean when Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work? All, all you really need to do to understand that is look at the second half of that verse where he completes it and he says, the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What Paul is saying there is, is something that that, that I'm convinced would transform all of us if we could get a hold of this, and we can understand this, and we can internalize this. What Paul is saying is, hey, I know who my God is, and I know that he's a God who rescues, so I know my God's going to rescue me. Now, sometimes he's going to rescue me from suffering. Sometimes he's going to rescue me through suffering. But either way, the end of my story is rescue. So basically what this means, when God, Scripture teaches that when God, when we enter into a saving relationship with God, God fervently, I mean passionately desires your and my transformation. And as he leads us through life in, in transforming us, that, that sometimes certainly God will rescue us from suffering. But what the Bible teaches us story after story after story is one of, the, one of the hallmarks of God's activity in our lives and the activity of the people that he loves is that more often than not, he'll rescue us not from suffering but through it, meaning he will use suffering to be the tool through which he develops us into the people that he's calling us to be. One thing I heard from a pastor one time that was so helpful to me, he said that the Bible talks about salvation in three different kind of tenses. That the moment you put your trust in Jesus, that very instant you are saved from the punishment of sin. So if you have put your trust in Jesus, you will never be punished according to your sins. That's why scripture can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who put their trust in Jesus. You will never be punished according to your sin. At the end of your life, when you stand before God and you receive your resurrected body... Uh, In that moment, you'll be saved, not from the punishment of sin, that already happened, but from the presence of sin altogether. You'll receive a new body completely uncorrupted, completely unstained by everything that's wrong with this life, and you'll live in a completely uncorrupted, unstained environment. That's the hope that we set our hearts on to this day and until that day. But until that day, from this moment until whenever that is, we are being saved. We're in a process of salvation, not from the punishment of sin, that already happened, but from the power of sin where the image of Jesus is being formed in us and we're becoming, through God's Holy Spirit, the people that he's called us to be. And and there's no way that you can ignore this if you just, even a cursory reading of scripture will tell you that one of the primary ways that God develops us, one of the primary ways that God breaks the power of sin in our lives and makes us more like Jesus, the scalpel that he uses more often than not is suffering to remove everything that is incompatible with the people that he's calling us to be. That's just how God operates. And so what Paul is essentially saying here. the the kind of sobriety that he has and the peace that he has is is legendary to me. What he's basically saying is, hey, Timothy, up to this point in my life, God has rescued me from death. And that's been great because I'm still alive. But now at this point in my life, it looks like God's going to rescue me through death. He's going to use my death to finally rescue me once and for all. That didn't bother Paul at all. He didn't lose an ounce of sleep over that because he knew that his end, in the end, he was going to be brought safely into the kingdom of God. In other words, I say that to say Paul understood that history is a masterpiece. It's not this random set of chaotic events that you really have to kind of grope to find any meaning in. That history itself and his life specifically was a masterpiece being crafted by the hands of the Almighty. That's, what, that's what, where Paul's peace came from. And so he knew that everything that had happened to him everything that was happening to him, everything that was likely to happen to him tomorrow, all of that was being designed by his God for his good. And all of it would eventually lead to his own rescue. And if you're wondering, well, why, you know, does that practically work itself out or how does that work? Here's the reason I say this would completely transform us if we actually understood this. Because look at, look at Paul's words in this passage. I, I read this earlier. He talks about Alexander the coppersmith uh, doing great harm to him. Paul says that. I don't know what that means. But for Paul to say that somebody did great harm to him, I mean, this is a guy that went through a lot. You know, he, his, his, his back would have been absolutely filled with scars. he probably walked with a limp. He's had broken bones. He, it looks like he actually did die from stoning one time and then was raised again. So for him to say that this Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to him, whatever that is, it must have been pretty rough. He follows that immediately by saying God will repay him. I'm like, I've I've handed that over to God. That's God's business. He knows what Alexander the coppersmith deserves. That's not on me. In the same passage, he says at, at his first offense, everyone deserted him. That's everyone that he invested his life in. Everybody that he gave his life for. Everybody that could have at least been there for Paul in his moment of need. Every single one of them deserted him. He immediately chases that by saying, may it not be held against him. There's an incredible kind of poise about Paul. He's at the end of an incredibly hard life. He's got enemies opposing him even to his final breath. He's got friends that refuse to stand there for him like he stood in the gap for them. And there's not, a, there's not an ounce of bitterness about what has happened or anxiety about what will happen. And that's because he knew that God was in control in all of this. He knew that God was crafting this masterpiece of his life in all of this and all of it was going to eventually lead to his rescue. This is exactly the same idea that you find in Romans 8:28, where Paul said all things work together for good for those who love God. What that verse means is that from the vantage point of eternity, which we are never going to have in this life, we, we'll be glad if we can see a, a, a one, one billionth of what our viewpoint in eternity is like. What that verse means is that from the viewpoint of eternity, we're going to be able to see that everything that happened to us, everything that God led us through, the childhood home, the experiences, the broken relationships, the abuse, the pain, the trauma, the unfulfilled dreams, all of it, everything that God allowed us to experience in this life was so overruled by God that even the evil things that happened to us accomplished the opposite of what they intended. That all of it is going to work together and somehow we're going to know then that all of it was necessary to bring about a greater good and a greater glory than would otherwise have been possible if God had had, had led your life and written your story in any other way. That's what this means. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. That this is not a series of random chaotic events. That history is a masterpiece. And whenever God leads us through in Jesus, he's either going to rescue us from suffering or he's going to rescue us through it. He's going to use it to be the method of our rescue. But either way, history is a masterpiece. And all of that leads us to what's going to be our, our fourth and final idea. Last idea in the Acts series. It's number four. There's only one thing you really need. There's only one thing you really need. We already covered these verses, but it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, In my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Everyone deserted me, Paul says. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. You, you look at those verses. And the thing that I can't help but notice here is Paul is talking about the Lord. Paul is talking about Jesus Christ Christ. Exactly like you and I would talk about a friend. And literally, you, you could sub out the name Barnabas there. You, Paul could say, at my first offense, nobody was with me. Everybody deserted me, but Barnabas. Barnabas stood with me. Barnabas strengthened me. But he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who upholds the universe with the word of his power. He's talking about the risen Son of God like he's his personal friend. Proverbs 18.24 says that there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And in the Old Testament, which talks a lot about friendship, which is something that I think we have completely all but forgotten in the West. We're so pragmatic. We're so busy. I don't think we have any idea what the biblical meaning of true friendship really is. When the Bible talks about a true friend, a true friend is always marked by at least two things. Number one, they always let you in. Number two, they never let you down. They always let you in means they open up their life to you. They're vulnerable to you. They never let you down means they are with you to the end of the line. No matter what you're walking through, you're not walking through it alone. There's tenderness and there's steadfastness. And you see both of those ideas in Paul's words as he describes Jesus here. There's the tenderness of friendship that Paul says, Jesus strengthened me. That's a word that literally means to bind up somebody's wounds and nurse them back to health. And then there's the stalwartness here, the steadfastness here, that when everybody else deserted Paul, when everybody else deserted Paul, Jesus was there for him. Now, I I said on the front end of this teaching that this was about four perspectives we need if we're going to finish well. The plain fact of the matter is we need a whole lot more than a perspective if we want to make it out of this life alive, if we want to finish this life well. We need more than a perspective. We need a person. We need a person who's finished well for us. We need a person who's gone ahead of us. We need a person who says they're never going to leave us and they're never going to forsake us. We need a person who can stand with us no matter where we're standing. We need a person who can strengthen us when we are at the end of the strength that we have. That person is named Jesus. What is crystal clear in the final words of Paul here to Timothy is there was only one thing he knew he really needed and that was friendship with God. There's there's a whole lot of people in this life that have this kind of a general belief in God. But when Paul talks about Jesus standing with him and strengthening him, he's talking about something that I think a lot of people have no concept of. He's not talking about a general belief in God. He's talking about a personal relationship, an existential counter with his Savior. He's talking about Jesus, having Jesus come into his life like a friend comes into your life when everything is coming unglued. And you don't know what to make of it. What Paul is saying here is I felt him with me. This isn't just some intangible, ethereal hope that I have. This isn't just some delusion I had on the road to Damascus. I felt him stand with me. I leaned on him. Somehow in my weakness, his strength was magnified in my life. And his strength actually became my strength. That's what friendship with God actually means. And that's the one thing. The singular thing that you and I need if we're going to finish well. So many people have this general belief in God or they try to live their life according to a general set of Judeo-Christian values and they might pray before they eat and they might pray before they go to bed and they might do religious, moral things. It's going to take a whole lot more than that for you and I to finish this life well. It's going to take what Paul is talking about here. And the final question that Paul's life forces the reader to ask, forces you to ask, is do you know Jesus like this? Do you, do you, have you experienced friendship with Jesus like this? Have you had an encounter with your creator like this? And this isn't something that you're going to experience all the time. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, there's always going to be periods of spiritual dryness. It's not going to be rainbows and butterflies every day. But the question is, have you ever experienced anything like what Paul's talking about here? Do you know what this is to experience your Savior standing with you and strengthening you? And maybe you ask the question, how do you get something like that? And the answer is clear. We get it the same exact way Paul got it, the way anybody gets it. We got it. We get it. It's available to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 15, it's the night before Jesus knows everybody's going to leave him. His own father's going to forsake him. He's going to die. And he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm not calling you my servants anymore. I'm calling you my friends. That's something that every single human being we are designed by our Creator to need that kind of relationship with Jesus. The reason that we need to know Jesus as a friend is because He is the only friend who will, he will, He's the only friend who will always let you in. Literally at Calvary, His arms were nailed open for you. No one has ever been more vulnerable to you than He has. No one has ever opened up to you more than He has. And no one has, you know, we talk about friends. They they always let you in. They never let you down. He is the only friend that will never let you down. When he hung on that cross, he was being abandoned. He was being forsaken. He was being deserted. He was being punished for crimes he did not commit, and he stayed. And I want to tell you something. He did not stay on that cross for humanity in general. He stayed on that cross for you personally. You need to know that. We need to know that. It's the most important truth in the universe. I want to close. We're going to call the worship team up. And this will be the last thing we go over today. John Stott in his commentary in Second Timothy. He said that this time where Paul says everyone deserted me. He said that, that basically what that is. Is it's Paul's Gethsemane. Because what you have here is Paul was on trial for his life. And everyone deserted him. Just like when Jesus was on trial for his life, everyone deserted Jesus. But there's a huge difference here. Because when everybody deserted Paul, he turned to God and he was strengthened and comforted by his relationship with God. But when everybody deserted Jesus and he turned to God, Jesus called out and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scripture teaches that you and I were designed originally to walk with God. I think one of the most beautiful pictures In all of Scripture is found before the fall in the first two chapters of Genesis where there's this picture of mankind, of Adam, walking with God in the garden. That's exactly what you and I were designed for. But we turned our backs on him. And what we deserve is for God to turn his back on us. But that's exactly what was happening to Jesus on the cross. I remember years ago, this always stuck with me. I was teaching about this exact concept and somebody from the congregation came up to me, and he was, he was crying, and he said his whole life he was so worried about what God the Father would say about him when he stands before him at the end of his life because he always saw Jesus on the cross, and he'd been raised in church. He saw Jesus on the cross, and he said, if God the Father forsook Jesus, then what chance do I stand before God? If he, if he turned his back on Jesus, then how could I possibly stand before him with any hope of being accepted? The only reason we have any hope of being accepted is because Jesus was not. The only reason we can have any assurance of our salvation is because Jesus was forsaken. Because he wasn't dying for his sins, he was dying for yours, and he was dying for mine. And he was coming as the great substitution to take our penalty away so that we would never experience what it's like to be forsaken by God. Calvary shows us that God was willing to forsake his own son so that he would never have to forsake you if you would just put your trust in Jesus. That's the gospel. i got to ask you, do you know Jesus like that? Do you know the Son of God like that? Do you have friendship with your creator like that? Can you say that he stood with you? that he strengthened you? Is it more than just this abstract, ethereal idea? It's the most important question you will answer between now and the day that you stand before God. Knowing Jesus like this is the only shot you and I stand in this lifelong struggle that life so often is. You're not going to be able to resist the the inclinations of your own heart to put you and your agenda first until you see Jesus laying down his life for you. You can't. We don't have it in us. We're not going to be able to face our own death Or the death of anybody that we love apart from Jesus. Apart from that empty tomb promising us that death is just an adventure. And on the other side of this, we're going to be more alive than we ever have been by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And it's only in knowing Jesus like this that we can rest knowing that history is a masterpiece. That God's in control of it. And all of it's going to lead to our rescue. And we're going to make it safe to that other shore. And we're going to arrive in his kingdom safe and sound. And nothing and no one can take that away from us. The, it, more, than, more than we need oxygen we need to know Jesus the way that Paul does here I gotta ask you do you know him like that do you know him like that there's not a person alive that can answer that question for you don't walk out of here until you've answered it his arms are open waiting for you that's it that's all let me pray for us God there's just two people listening to this teaching right now people that know Jesus and, and people that don't And wherever we're standing God we need to know him more You know the hearts and minds of every single person right now. You know who has yet to put their trust in the Son of God who lived for them, died for them, and rose again for them. God, would you open their eyes today and cause your light to shine so brightly in their life that they would be powerless but to see it. God, would people please, God, would you bring people home today into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And for those of us who've made that decision, God, would you just make us a community of people that it can be said we knew Jesus more throughout our momentary vapor of a life on this rock. Let it be said that we knew Jesus more and then we knew him more and then we knew him more. And our love for him and our trust in him grew deeper and deeper all the days of our lives. And we looked more like him and we loved more like him and we showed people what you did for this world through Jesus. Let us be a church full of people completely changed by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. There's nothing greater. There's no better way to spend our time. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.